What's up, everybody? This is Eric Veal with the AppsJack Capable Communities podcast. On this podcast, we explore business skills, and our basic goal is to teach and train our listeners to use different good thought processes borrowed from Fortune 500 companies, startups, and a lot of good reading that me and my guests have done. So our interest is in sharing our information with you about frameworks and practices and experiences we've had to help you run your business better or you apply skills within your day job to make it more fun. This episode of the AppsJack Capable Communities podcast is brought to you by C-Town Media, creating movements to make impact. You can take advantage of this promotion and find them at sea-townmedia.com slash appsjack. This episode of the AppsJack podcast is also brought to you by Adventag. Adventag is a leading Seattle-based data-as-a-service company. Find out more about the promotion at adventag.com slash appsjack. Hey, everybody. This is Eric with the AppsJack podcast. We just finished recording the Develop and Manage Business Capabilities podcast. On the show today, we had Alan Sebring and Andy Scott. Alan is somebody that I met in the Seattle area who is an agile lean coach and has been an executive in different companies around town. So he has a lot of interesting things to say from the agile lean perspective. And our other guest was Andy Scott. Andy Scott is a former executive from Hewlett Packard, and he has a lot of really great experience about transformation within businesses. So have a listen. Uh, the episode r- runs about one hour, and a lot we cover a lot of interesting territory here. We talk about frameworks. We talk about Agile. We talk about assumption testing, and enjoy. Okay, welcome to the Abstract Podcast. This is our second episode, and today we're talking about developing and managing business capabilities. Last month, we talked about uh, managing external relationships, which is the 11th of 12 skills in uh, the APQC framework that we're following. And so this month, we're going to talk about developing and managing business capabilities. And on the show, I have, I have Alan Sebring and Andy Scott. And uh, these are a couple guys from my network in Seattle. And we're here to just kind of explore, explore this topic, share what we know, talk about pitfalls, trials, tribulations, uh, areas where we see the the industry kind of going. So let's just start with a simple question to kind of tee things up, which is, uh, and, and I'll take a shot at this after you guys go, but let's each talk about some of our experiences with developing and managing business capabilities. And I actually will take a shot real quick here. So I actually got most of my experience doing this when I worked for Siemens Corporation from 19, or actually, two, sorry, 2000 until about 2006. And Siemens is kind of known for quality and they're a, they're a huge corporation and have a lot of systems and frameworks. So they their quality was everything. And I was also in their healthcare division. So they had a lot of risk management stuff built in. They wanted to, of course, do no harm. And they followed many, they're regulated. And so that's where I got a lot of my experience with this area of needing to work on the business and make sure that the the stuff that was going on within their division was of quality and was reducing and eliminating risk. So that's my background. And then, Alan, why don't you take a shot of, of tell us a little bit about some of your experiences in this area. Sure. Um, so I've, I've really had a career that's gone from individual contributor as a software developer up through executive roles where I'm managing larger organizations to, to develop software products. And throughout that, there's always been the pressure to deliver um, but then, you know, interest in trying to continuously improve is something that I, I got onto early on. And so throughout that, I've always tried to find a balance, whether it's in smaller organizations or larger organizations, they're all struggling with some, something around that balance. And I felt like the thing that I really, my brand, if you will, is around a kind of a pragmatic balance that if we're improving, we have to continue to pay the bills. We have to kind of have a report card of are we, is this actually helping us to deliver that it's not an isolated um, sort of academic exercise? So it's been, like I said, a combination of smaller companies and larger companies, um, but that's what I've, you know, kind of the space in which I've played. Great. How about you, Andy? Yeah, well, for me, I started uh, across the pond, and you might be able to tell with the accent. Um, I was... Uh, I've been through a number of roles all the way from military, where, in fact, I learned some very... 
uh, important lessons that I didn't realize until later on um, in my career. Uh, I've built um, organizations within larger companies. Um, for example, uh, British Airways, we created a subsidiary company um, using the Toyota production method, which is a big um, continuous improvement and transformation methodology. Uh, and then I moved over to um, computing, so away from aircraft and over to uh, compact computing and um, uh, Hewlett Packard, uh, where I've run a variety from organizations, uh, service businesses, um, all the way through to massive transformational multi-billion dollar programs. And it's really um, very interesting to, for, for me to realize that no matter what the industry that I've been in, um, the problems and the solutions to problems of program and project management and building business capabilities are really very similar, irrespective of the um, industry. Right, and I, I think that's the thing that's exciting about this, of the 12 topics, this is one that all the 12 topics are skills within business or different things that the businesses need to do, but this is kind of the meta one that's just about business generally or, or kind of finding focus. So the, the, the top of the order and the practice number one is de developing vision and strategy. So that's kind of where it all starts. And this is where it all, to me, culminates that after you've gone through a full execution cycle and you have a business that's running, you, you then need to know how it's running and you need to be able to direct action and to be a little bit more specific about some of the other aspects that are within this, this capability or this category. So there's, and this is just kind of a, a laundry list or litany. So there's, there's business processes, business process management, portfolio program and project management, quality management, change management, uh, developing and managing knowledge knowledge management, and and then measuring and benchmarking. So a couple of stories I'll briefly tell about the the measuring and benchmarking part is data. I work for a company that um, does a lot with data, and and um, so that's of course in my opinion becoming more and more a part of businesses today. That with with big data explosion and and just the internet being so central to so much of what we do and software being so central, there's just more data about our operations. So that's one comment. And then the knowledge management piece is another aspect of it that I find, or I've basically historically found exciting that if you, if you do write things down, and the podcast is really an example of that as we're recording our conversation and our knowledge about this topic so we can easily, easily share it with everyone. And, and that's another skill that, that I think a lot of businesses need to learn is that when knowledge is embedded within particular individuals, it creates cultures that don't really expand or scale too well. And once, once individuals learn that they're better off if they kind of write themselves out of jobs and make things more systematic, then they're helping the organization or business at large. Yeah, and they'll be appreciated for it. People are f afraid of it when, in fact, you know, management usually sees that type of activity as being a positive thing. And the more that you try to put yourself out of a job, the more they appreciate your abilities and the more likely you are to get a broader set of experiences you know, I, I just don't see that people just usually write themselves out of a job <laughs> and then they get fired. It's just not the way things usually happen. But but it's not also really, I don't know how common or expected it is. Do you, what percentage of employees would either of you guys guess today are good at the systems thinking or thinking of themselves as creating capabilities or building programs that other people can utilize or kind of assets to the business that that add value. What yeah, I, don't, I don't think, I think they, a lot of them don't have that vocabulary and that's where I think some of the work to me that's very fulfilling is you go into organizations that are under pressures to perform, to go faster, whatever. And a lot of what I try to do is go in kind of through the lens of lean and turn the lights up a little bit on what's really going on, where are we really being held back. Now that's a little scary for everybody. 
But I think if you have the right cultural context and the right leadership making it safe, you can start to see, yeah, this is going to be a new journey which has excitement, but we're in it together. And so the companies that really know how to do that well, um, I think, are the ones that, that get through it, the ones that perceive it as, you know, we're going to be cutting staff to cut costs. That, that's where it goes awry. Mm -hmm. I think Alan's right in the terms around the people don't have the vocabulary, although I think people believe that, you know, a lot of employees believe that they are um, changing things, they're making um, things better. It's just not done in a systematic um, way necessarily. But I think if you asked a lot of employees, they would certainly not necessarily say they're trying to put themselves out of a job, but they would so certainly say, oh, I'm always trying to make things better. I want to do a better um, job. And it kind of leads me back to your benchmarking um, uh, little question. And benchmarking can be a very useful uh, process. But if you benchmark to set your strategy, you're limiting yourself. Versus if you benchmark yourself to um, improve a process, then that is more easily done and brings about more results. It's very difficult to benchmark a company at a company level because you you're against other companies who might have a different business model. You know, right. It's very hard to benchmark sales per employee if one company has all of its sales outsourced and the other company has all of its sales um, insourced sure. you know, as part of their employee base. And then that looks a very different metric. Yet, who's sure. to say which is the best? Um, well, I think model. You, brought, you brought up an interesting point about where benchmarking can be best applied. And I, heard, I recall a story recently about JCPenney's struggles and how they're recovering. And the CEO who is now in there really was realizing they were trying to turn it into a company that it wasn't. They were trying to become Target, and they're not Target. And, I, and the interesting thing was, it was, well, how did you figure out that you shouldn't be going in that way? And he goes, we looked at who our customers were. They're mostly women, they're mostly older, but then we have this younger crowd. And I guess what my big takeaway was, you, you, you started this business for a certain purpose, and if it's still valid, you might need to hang on to that, even as you change the way you execute. Right. Um, right, yeah, so, so performance, I think we haven't said that word yet, that's part of the benchmarking aspect, is, <laughs> is you can look internally, and you can, you can look at how your people were performing, and on a very local level, try to improve things just based on the staff you have and through implementing programs that are are good at working with people and that it does a good job on the human resources side of things and establishing a good vision so i think you can be you can be a leader at a local level but then competitively across industry you, you might be weak well, there's a difference between sharpening the saw and abandoning a saw for a laser, if you will, because <laughs> I heard strategy is maybe not the place where, you know, benchmarking, I'm not sure how that, how do you change strategy based on benchmarking? That doesn't right. make sense in my mind. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but a lot of companies do. Mm -hmm. um, there's also dangers, and you talked to Eric about the proliferation of big data, and um, uh, again, what are you going to do with that? big data, how are you going to synthesize it down so it's useful at the process level, at the team level, and at the company level so you can actually drive um, the business forward with it rather than get stuck in a morass of data and, again, creating yourself perhaps some false benchmarks rather than true um, benchmarks. And give an example. Um, uh, Hewlett Packard, uh, we were providing service delivery. Um, so this is fixing computers at banks and you know business to business at big corporations, fixing their data centers and and so on. And so we provided parts to engineers, and engineers went on site to fix um, the problem. Now we had a mix of delivery models. You know we had engineers physically on site at the customer. We had channel partners going on site to the customer. We had parts that we would just ship to the customer and they would do it themselves. 
We had phone uh, support, and we had chat support, and we had um, internet support, you know, completely zero human intervention. Now, when you benchmark, if you were to benchmark against a company, for example, like Symantec, who have a great deal, it's almost all on the web. Well, so they have a 90% web support system, which is very low cost. Now, HP could never possibly go to a 90% um, web support, no matter what they wanted to do, because they provided all these other services that people paid for. And so, uh, to me, that's some of the things where you can get learn something from Symantec and how they got to that 90%. But it doesn't mean you have to go um, after that 90% as a goal. And that's one of the nice things about the APQC um, process. It allows you to benchmark processes and how the work gets done, not just the performance indicator at the end. Right. And, and then the... the, the um to differentiate oneself, I think that's another part of this is if you did do benchmarking and you did realize that you had a gap within the industry and you kind of brought your own company up to to what was modern, for example, you're only kind of me too. And, and so you, you bought the software, you, you did it kind of like the other people were doing, so you're now caught up, but that, that didn't do it for you competitively. It maybe just gave you it gave you more strength. It it made you more competitive in the market, but it didn't it didn't solve all your problems. Well, I'm kind of wondering. I mean, I guess I'm in my world. You know, I, I go into organizations and I often look through the the, the the lean thinking principles, and I've got all my you know Scrum and Kanban and all these these software oriented methods of how we make things better. But I'm I'm less interested in benchmarking because. Um, because I, I think I'm, there's enough to see right here that we know we can make better for us. Now, KPIs is something that I think a lot of organizations of a certain size are not very effective with. Okay, so let's get better. Well, how do we decide what better is for company X? So I guess my point is it's, it's not that I never am interested in comparing myself to others, but most of the action is maybe more localized on what are we trying to accomplish? What is our value? How are we doing it or not doing it? Turning the lights up, and then let's put our smart people to work in a safe culture to, to mm -hmm. get busy. And so it's, I'm trying to really distill it down to that thing that we spoke of earlier about people want to get better and do better, but sometimes they need a little bit of structure on how to, how to do it. I find it um, interesting in today's world, um, and Alan, you may uh, see this because you kind of uh, specialize in the lean um, side of things. I think that uh, there are a lot of tools out there, Lean, Six Sigma, Total Quality Management, Toyota Production System. Um, and they all have a place, but they're all tools in your toolbox. And usually what makes big change, what makes transformational change uh, is innovation. It's trying to do something that people think is impossible. It's not making those incremental pieces. The incremental pieces are very important, but there's a difference between the two. You don't get the big changes usually using these small um, toolboxes. Mm -hmm. And that's why startups come in and disrupt things mm -hmm. so readily, because they come in with something new. They're not encumbered by processes and things that they've already um, uh, got behind them that they have to continuously improve, they come in with fresh thinking and can do um, much bigger things. And you know, to be successful now as an enterprise uh, company, I think you have to have that type of agility and, and entrepreneurial thinking to go along with the process um, and rigor that is required to operate at the scale of a big enterprise. And, and uh, Andy, do you, do you see the startups being able to benefit from this kind of thinking, the kind of structured APQC thinking? I mean, I do. I'm very passionate about it. I think, I think it's not just a tool for enterprises. I, and I, I think, I think it's, it's interesting, the comment about that they are able to make disruptive innovations because they don't have all the baggage of, of, 
of like existing operations and existing people they can just go. Uh, but I, but I guess I still feel like these types of frameworks and, or like you say, the toolbox, it's not irrelevant at all. No, not at all. And I think part of it depends at the life cycle of the company and the scale of the company. Um, as you start to ramp up the number of customers you um, have and the number of things that you are doing on a day-to-day basis, as you add employees, you need some form of processes so things can get done in a consistent manner. Um, you no longer have just the founding few people who know everything about everything. You now have to impart that knowledge. You have to be able to repeat uh, the delivery of your product in exactly the same way to the customer every time. And so as you grow, the more of those um, tools you need for um, building the organization so it can be a stable platform to grow even more. Well, I guess, Eric, to your, to your point, and, well, and, and to Andy's, I, frameworks are tools, and they're useful in different contexts to different degrees. I do think in my business, I see a lot of people struggling with, well, how do we scale agile, this, this sort of revolutionary way of managing software projects that was very skeletal. Well, now as we try to grow it up, there's people that are saying, well, we need a framework to address all these concerns that some of us figured out in the trenches. So frameworks are useful, but then you see the people, some organizations are trying to look at them as recipes, which they've done with non-agile and non-lean things, and that just really doesn't work. That doesn't mean the framework is bad, but it's just that, a framework. And so I, I do think there's a struggle in, in my world of everybody needs to get on board with scaled agile framework, for example. And then there's the people that are very resistant. Nope, you just need great coaches. And I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. Let's use this as a place to start the conversation, to have as a reference point, but let's bring it all back to our, our unique situation. Yeah, I think there's macro and micro scales. I think of I think of agile and lean and kanban and all that stuff at a micro kind of team level scale, mm-hmm. and then and then you'd see practices like Scrum of Scrum where it starts to aggregate a bunch of different Scrum teams into one larger program, and but then I guess I still feel like there's no framework on top of that. Scrum of Scrums is an idea. Mm-hmm. that is an idea of an aggregation of scrums that tells you something. And then you can borrow from PMBOK, for example, portfolio management and program management. And then you have the notion of tops down or the, the, the top, the definition of the top is the portfolio or your portfolios. And, and then again, at the micro scale, you have your teams and then those can roll up into programs. But well, this is exactly the stuff yeah. I'm doing literally last right, week right. <laughs> where you have 15 teams, and they all have different maturities of Scrum Agile execution. But we're trying to see where are things falling down, where are interdependencies not being managed effectively at the 15-team level. Mm-hmm. And so I'm playing with ideas of, well, what is flow at that level? Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably not little stories and tasks in the teams. Is it major multi-team features? And how do we apply the same principles of, hey, I need to talk to you because this thing that we thought was going to be smooth isn't. Sure. Um, so a lot of it is trying to figure out, again, go with those principles of how do we get value out for 15 teams working together. And a lot of what project management is and a lot of the space in which I play is I'm not going to solve this, but I'm going to reveal it. Sure. And, and that's why I use the, the metaphor of turning the lights up. And usually I don't have to tell people how to fix the problems. They just don't notice the problems like, you know, like, what part of what project management does. Sure. I think that um, when you get to looking at the portfolio level, a lot of it is about the decision-making and the prioritization um, of things that can then guide you into the management Mm -hmm. of the uh, interdependencies. I mean, when, um, you know, Year after year, decade after decade, we see um, consultants uh, publish, you know, what percentage of programs and strategies fail. And it's, you know, anywhere between 70 and 90% fail. Um, And yet we've come out with all of these new 
um, tools and certifications, whether it be Agile um, and um, or the PMP for project managers. Um, you know, John Cotter came out with his eight steps. I mean, that eight-step process is now 20 years old. And yet we haven't really changed how successful we are at delivering large um, programs and um, strategies. Why? Um, well, I think what it tells you is that it's not about what you do, because that's kind of really well prescribed. So therefore, it must be how it is um, being done. It, in my experience, um, there are some things that managers and leaders in, um, uh, in the projects, they pay lip service to. Let me give an example. How much um, do you think folks talk about the Seahawks here up in Seattle um, at work? You know, they probably talk about that for 20, 30 minutes at the lunchtime, and they'll talk about it in, while they're working. Now you want to change the strategy of the company. How much do you think you've got to communicate that to, you know, to be in comparison with um, the interest people have in the Seahawks because that's what you need mm -hmm. to really be successful you need people to be engaged and interested with the strategy and where they're going sure. just like they are with their favorite and, sports and that's Cotter's first step is a sense of urgency right? Pe people caring or there being enough of a, a problem or a fire or a vision anything inspiring to get people to be willing to engage yeah but these things take a long time yeah uh, you know, these programs take a long time, and it's really hard to keep that up. And so, you know, there are some ways around it. So, if, you know, I say one is constant, massive con communication. Another is around changing the cadence of how things get done. You know, so you go to projects, it tends to be monthly meetings and um, so on, you know. Uh, you see it more in Agile, where they reduce it down to days. And that's what you need to do um, with big uh, changes in capabilities. You need to generate that urgency and demonstrate that urgency by meeting and driving things on a daily basis and, and not taking uh, this kind of monthly reporting um, well, stance that most companies do. One of the things I guess I want to underscore that Andy was just speaking to is that idea of, of over-communicating. My first executive role where I came into an organization and the CEO was trying to decide, well, should we just retire, you know, slash the staff and milk this thing, or should we re-up? And so we, you went down the re-up path, which was a lot of fun, and so I'm all excited, you know, going into... Um, say, hey, guys, let's, you know, we're going to take this to the next level. We're going to rewrite this offer that you guys blood, sweat, and tears for the last decade. And I got a lot of, no, we're good, we're good. <laughs> and, and it was sort of like we didn't have the burning platform, which when you, do, when you have that, people are like, yes, I'll follow your orders because you're going to save us. We had sort of the smoking platform, but they didn't know it was smoking. And then after months and months of reports from the market and you know, a lot of listening and repeating between the CEO and myself, we persuaded them we do need to do something. And not only, should, but let's not be paralyzed with fear, let's be excited that we can do it again better. But I totally underestimated you know, how much it, me spending all this time in executive meetings, my troops were out there going, you know, we're good, we like the culture we have. And I really, that was a big lesson for me was around repeating the vision and, and explaining why you should believe it. Yeah, fear, I, I had that thought come up a few minutes ago when we were talking is just fear. Fear is a motivating <laughs> tactic that some people use. I was going to also ask the question just in industry now, and I'm sure it, of course, differs between industries, but just the sense of urgency. Do you think that the American worker today has, has the right sense of urgency? I, I kind of do, honestly. I feel like our cultures are pretty good. I feel like people are pretty motivated at work. I don't I don't really run into too many people that are just kind of like lazing on the switch, especially in software. I feel like there's there's a high sense of urgency just because it's a competitive and fast-paced 
it'd probably be different if you went to a coal mine and tried to have a conversation about transformational change. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm trying to point out point out a thing about culture or people's willingness to change, and that that's a foundational aspect of this is you have to have the buy-in. You can have a lot of initiatives as an executive or as a leader or a project manager, but if you didn't figure out how to create the right sticks and carrots to make people... I think there's somewhere it's fatigue. I see in an organization I'm in right now where there's a lot of longtime employees, you know, some really good people that really understand the domain, and they've played ball with management's direction changes for years. And I'm looking at this as a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed consultant in there saying, hey, this is great. This is great leadership. This is great organizational design. And they're like, this is the fifth time this has happened in the last two years, and we are just killing ourselves. I mean, people are in tears, not because they're afraid they're going to lose their job, but because they just don't know. They've, they've, they're, they're on a, uh, a hamster wheel, if you will, and, and, and it's not a sustainable workplace, and there's nothing comfortable about it. So the other side of exciting is, un- yeah. is you know, sort of really uncomfortable. <laughs> right. And then, and then I think that to me gets into benchmarking, for example, or kind of the sustainable pace that, mm-hmm. that agilists get into that if, if they do have their b- burn down in velocity, at least that's something that comes up in, can you give us an example of, of, uh, I, I know when I started working with agile and teams as a scrum master in 2009 at, at Microsoft, basically that it was popular and I thought good for people on the team to say this is not a sustainable pace they would they would kind of know that they were getting beat by managers in, into submission to kind of do their stuff and deliver and and so they kind of as a team pushed back on the unsustainable pace which which I thought was a good thing so I feel, I feel like agile empowers the worker again like at a micro scale but it's really predominantly used in software. It's not something that you'd necessarily see in marketing or in in HR. You know, the work management, there's so much more opportunity, obviously, outside of software for using agile lean thinking Mm -hmm. and scrum. And it's really just a work management thing. Do you guys have ideas of how a good practice, like what I would think agile and lean and scrum is, is a good thing, how can that become more proliferated into more industries? Well, let's give a, a recent example. I'm working with some product managers in a lean agile organization, and they're basically being asked to change their job. Stop being order takers, be people that are really thinking about problems, personas, KPIs, how to, how to really dent the universe in your little sphere. And these people are hyper over, you know, crazy overworked. And I've talked to some of them and I've said, you know, you are respected, you've earned the right to push back on some of these, you know, these many things being demanded of you. And part of the system <clears throat> solution that I've tried to suggest that comes from Agile is let's look at how your work flows. Some of it's very interrupt driven. You're the person who has to go talk to the stakeholder who's screaming right now. Some of it's project oriented. I have to come up with some product definition or whatever. And I said, why are we not having you work in the same visible way that our developers are working? This is, there's only so much you can do every two weeks. Some of it needs to be reserved for interrupts, and some of it's project-oriented work. So I've really suggested, and I'm still you know, trying to influence this, let's see how the most valuable thing that you can spend your time on looks, and then push back respectfully. And, and, and that's the turn on the lights <laughs> part, right? Or, yeah. just, or shine a light. I had a guy that I worked with named Jacob that his thing was shine a light. Mm-hmm. And um, Andy, any thoughts on... Yeah, I think that's... Um we get, if you look at history, um, Six Sigma, Total Quality Management, these are other tools like Agile, that they started off in the manufacturing environment and then over time they moved into administrative functions and other functions other than just um, manufacturing. I think it's just starting to happen now for um, Agile. I think that, you know, could we expand the pace of it? I think certainly by um, having some marquee uh, examples of um, it working in other uh, areas would certainly help get people going. 
but there's also this, there also seems to be this natural tendency to resist change. And uh, you know, you and I talked last uh, last week or a week or so ago. You know, fifty percent of the Fortune 500 that was there 20 years ago is no longer in the Fortune 500 anymore, and it's because they're not changing um, with the times at the speed that we need to. And in my mind, we're we're getting past continuous improvement as being the requirement to always be a bit better because of the pace of change, we're now into continuous transformation. And so that's kind of how I coin it. We're moving from continuous improvement to continuous transformation. And people who don't pick up these tools to do that will get left behind. And, and does that become this, because the system or game changed? That would kind of be my answer, yes. right? Is that it used to get you by. Yep. The pace of industry used to be slow, for example. Now we're at internet scale, internet speed, business at the speed of thought to, in Bill, Bill Gates' mind. And so now you have to continuously transform to keep up. Yes. You can't, if you're just looking internally and happy with your culture and you have some niche carved out, it's pretty rare to think that you're really going to be in business for very long. Well, and Andy, I'm, I'm wondering if you're thinking what I'm thinking, that there's a difference between operational excellence, you know, kind of making your engine better all the time, versus leadership agility, which is, you know, some people throw that buzzword around. But if you have a leadership team that needs to figure out which roads, you know, going with that metaphor a little bit more, you know, wow, we just hit a new market situation where we're going to have our lunch eaten by Apple or whatever. Yeah. How does that leadership team effectively respond to that, regardless of how great their staff is yeah. and how great the, the engine refactoring and, and polishing is? It's like we need to make, and some of the companies that have done this, it's brilliant. You know, how somehow they took this huge leap to go in a different direction before they got wiped out. I think some of that is due to... Um, the decision-making of a, a leadership team. You talked about you know, um, teams being so overworked that they needed to, be, uh, they needed to push back. Uh, it's quite a skill for, a, for the leadership to determine what the resources are required to do what things. And to me, it comes down to, you, know, you have to prioritize and do the few things and you have to put the amount of resources into it to get them done quickly. Because the longer things take, you know, a lot of projects don't fail outright, they just degrade, they die by a thousand cuts, they mm -hmm. die by a lack of will to continue on your example of five reorgs in two years. Um, and so I, I see that you know, leaders are responsible for prioritizing um, very, very strongly to just the critical few things and then resourcing those critical few things with the resources to get it done quickly. Um, and, you know, I can, uh, this goes back to one of the lessons that I uh, said I learned when I was in the Air Force but didn't realize until later on. Um, I was doing some leadership training and uh, it was with the Special Air Service, the SAS of the British um, Forces. Not that I was in the SAS, it was just we were doing the training, uh, leadership training exercises with them. And talking to them and how they worked as small teams, you got to understand that they actually prioritized which one of them was going to die in some situations. And if they can prioritize which one of them you know, is the one that's going to die because that bit needs to get done in the mission and it's a suicide, uh, suicidal um, attempt to do it, um, then you know, in business we can darn well prioritize anything. Uh, and so that was a big lesson um, uh, for me is that prioritization is one of the key key things, and it's much better to get three things done than 10 things only part done. And it, that would also be scope management and PMP land. Yeah. Well, you know what, I really do think yeah. it comes from leadership. I mean, whenever I hear people talking about a vision that 
is greatness, but it doesn't talk about what you're choosing not to do. Or when I hear about priorities and you're not very explicitly explaining what's been deprioritized, mm -hmm. you don't have credibility. Yeah. And so part of what I'm working with and gently coaching leaders is you need to be very clear you've made choices because otherwise people are going to just, you know, they're going to kind of roll their eyes and they're going to go, yeah, whatever, versus, wow, he's making a courageous decision to go that way and giving that thing up. That informs me as, a, as an individual, maybe further into the, the work, that I'm going to focus in this area. And when you can get that kind of alignment and focus, you know, I think that's a, a huge difference in the, in the best companies. This episode of the AppsCheck Capable Communities podcast is brought to you by Seatown Media, creating movements to make impact. If you are a business or individual who has a message to get out there, let Seatown Media help. They provide recording and podcasting services from beginning to end, podcast setup, recording, engineering, production, and distribution. They also offer small business marketing and branding consulting, as well as real estate industry-specific consulting and training. To learn more, visit seatownmedia slash appscheck. That's S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com slash appscheck. This episode of the AppsCheck podcast is brought to you by Adventag. Adventag is a leading Seattle-based data-as-a-service company that helps e-commerce store owners running Shopify or Magento gain many new insights in their data through its trained staff and machine learning algorithms. Go to adventag.com slash appsjack today to start reaping the rewards of increased sales. That's A-D-V-E-N-T-A-G dot com. Yep. And, and then, so maybe to just focus on change for a little bit here, because that sounds like what we're talking about. So the APQC breaks down change between, so managing change. So you have planning the change, designing the change, implementing the change, and then sustaining improvement. Sounds a little bit cotter that you anchor it in. Um, what, what are the challenges if you do need to, so the framework that we learned at UW was, uh, what are the expect the question? The first question is your performance context. What are the expectations of powerful and legitimate stakeholders? So you have to have a clear vision, and it's in the the context of expectation. It's not unrealistic. It's focused and, and prioritized, kind of like you say. It's it's literally to the level of expectation. But but then you have to check that a little bit, make sure that it's possible or feasible. And then, and then when, then you look at your activity system and what are the activities that people are doing now, which is the current state. And then you have the as is future state. What, what are the activities that people need to be doing? And then you have to basically chop those activities up between what do we need to keep doing? These are the true changes. What do we need to keep doing? We want to, we want to continue to encourage people to do that. What do we need to stop doing? You need to create incentives and something in it for people to stop what they're doing, but then you probably need to replace that behavior with what do they need to start doing. Well, there's, there's clearly a lot of aspects to this, and in the larger scale organizations, they are willing to invest and put a lot of structure around it. Um, I guess what I look at it, because I look at how many of those are succeeding, and, and I, what I'm trying to do is keep it as simple as possible. So I, I, uh, there's a few things. Leadership needs to be very clear about what they're doing and why they're doing it and keep repeating that question. You know, set the, the, the safety context so that you get people on board, they're not just paralyzed and resisting you, and then have a lot of check-ins. And I do think somebody needs to kind of be steering it, but that could be a bunch of the people that are representing, you know, again, depending on scale, the people, the people that are being affected. So if we say, hey, we're gonna, be, we're gonna affect this change over the next six months, here's what we're hoping to accomplish, here's how we're gonna measure our progress, here's our check-ins, it could be something quite simple, simply framed. Yes, somebody should probably be thinking about all those things you just listed, but a lot of that, I mean, people's eyes, including mine sometimes, glaze over <laughs> on the complexity of the yeah. frameworks, and then you look at all the failed attempts at transformation. Totally. Versus the successful attempts at transformation, mm -hmm. what did they get right? Maybe they only got three of the 10 things right. I don't. Well, I think what they um, get right is uh, they get right the decision making. They get right mm -hmm. the sense of urgency and communication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, again, this is a big difference between a small company and the enterprise. The small company, everybody's on board. It's easy to have a consistent vision of what's got to be achieved. It's exciting, they're doing something new, they drive hard, 
for it until it's done. You get into a larger company, and now if it's if the change is just in one team, well, you've got the same situation as you have with a small company. But if you've got it across multiple teams or multiple departments, well, now every one of those departments, their leadership all has a different goal to what you do when you're trying to make a change. And so, you know, to your point, it's about getting those stakeholders on board and how you communicate um, with them. Uh, it comes down to decisions and where those decisions get made. All too often, the people who get asked to write the requirements of the future state and to, sh to show the current state are just the people who do the job. It's the person entering the data into the system. It's the person who's filling out the forms. And what you end up missing is, well, where's the department going? I'll give you an example. Um, I was at a company, Fortune 500 company, and the, they were doing repairs of computer boards. And the decision had been made that all of that repair was being outsourced. And it was due to be outsourced in about nine months' time. So strategically, we were outsourcing all of the repair and all the production control around all of that. At the same time, we were um, replacing uh, something like 120 systems with a backbone of nine or 10. Uh, massive change uh, in uh, IT infrastructure. The folks who had the workshop kept putting in requirements for us to build a system to do production control and repair management. Yet, up at the higher levels, the decision had already been made, and it had been communicated, to get rid of the repair. And so you end up in this situation where, for me, running the transformation, I'm having to keep telling the repair shop people, no, you can't have this. And they keep coming back to me. Yes, we want this. And we end up having a senior VP to senior VP um, discussion uh, telling the America's region guy, you can't have this. And he says, well, why not? Well, because they're asking for repair functionality. And he goes, well, why, why are they asking for repair functionality when we're outsourcing it? Exactly. <laughs> and it's because the decision-making wasn't getting passed up the chain. It was because the folks were doing it at the uh, micro level. Um, uh, and, and you know, it's just the wrong place for those Well, it seems decisions. like some of these things, I mean, I'm thinking of some examples that were big and successful. At the top, there was clarity, and there's lots of detail. Amazon made a decision years ago to go with microservices. They said everything will, you know, this thing at the time that everybody said, oh my God, that's going to be so hard. But whether it was Bezos, I don't know exactly who made, who, you know, Bezos drove it. And it was like, we will do everything in a way to create all these little micro thingies because it's going gonna, it's gonna to support the long-term vision. And it was painful and it was expensive. But in retrospect, you can't imagine it not happening. And then IBM, under Gerstner, we're going to services, which was not what IBM was at the time. And so somehow there was a clarity and a simplicity at the very top, and then there was a lot of details, versus some of these changes are, well, why should I support that one? You're, you're trying to change the bottom line, you know? And imagine, I gotta imagine it's a different set of skills to affect that kind of a change than do something that's hard and exciting and clear. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the skills is probably alignment. That's the word that comes to my mind, and and then similarly, like we're saying, I think it's kind of the bottoms up, tops down thing. Is that somehow there has to be some meeting of minds and shared understanding about the purpose and the vision and consistent and, messaging and re-messaging. Yeah. And then there, and then there's like an entrenchment part. I think would be a, like a negative part of culture where you know, people get entrenched in doing what they're doing or they love what they're doing or it's the only thing that they know how to do and they're going to keep doing it. They're skilled at it and they didn't get the appropriate training or communication or f framing really to do anything different. And so they weren't really enabled to change. They were just told to change 
and then they resisted it and it failed or just never happened. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, um, you know, really spot on. It's, it, it really is about alignment and the right communications to the right people, making the strong decisions that we are going in one particular direction and we're not going in another direction, and then driving that so it really, really happens, not just leaving it. Mm-hmm. I say, it's this idea that over time, a lot of this wanes and people start to forget why they're doing this. It just becomes, oh, that's another... I think what happens in, in corporations is they become very externally focused and market focused mm-hmm. and, and they do everything for their customer and for the market. And so they, they develop a bunch of capability around marketing and marketing to audiences and then they forget their internal audience or they just kind of assume that an employee is an employee and that the employees can just be told. And so they, they don't really segment necessarily very well internally to it's the role based training kind of model. <clears throat> which would be more part of the HR function. But um, I, I think, th- to me, the same systems that work for marketing work for transformation inside of a company. You need to identify the roles. You need to understand their needs. You understand their interests. And you have to figure out how to create programming or products that are going to be inspiring to them to say yes. Yeah, it's one of, yeah. oh, oh, I, was, I was just going to say that I think part of it, the, the leaders that really pull this off well, one, there's a respect for what the people on the inside. And if it does not play well to them, stop being frustrated. Why are these people not getting the wisdom of my, you know, our executive team? As opposed to, we know we have to make a decision about what's right for the company. But if we have not effectively communicated, and our grade is... You know, is is if it's three people that aren't getting it, that's one thing. But if the team is not getting, they don't understand why. Well, you have work to do, and I think there's a lot of executives that just they're they're kind of flummoxed. And I think part of it's steeped in 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 just sort of a disrespect. And I think the the other part is they don't have the skills necessarily. Like, how do you brand it? How do you create simple metaphors? How do you create a message that? Oh yeah, I get what he what they're after in in language that speaks to me. Yeah, and that, that's a leadership issue, right? Is is um, a bad leader would just blame it on the culture and not own the problem and not mm-hmm. realize that it's their fault and their problem mm-hmm. that they're having such a problem. They'd come up with programming and messaging and messaging to to fix and understand the culture and the people and their concerns. That people would ultimately be heard and and that kind of thing. And then anyway, the HR the HR aspect of it, I guess I find that part fascinating having been a part of a lot of these kind of change things you know some that worked some that didn't and the hard part is the people and and changing them I remember a story from Siemens where I was it was actually probably one of the first projects I ever managed at the enterprise level and my boss who was a great coach his his thing a couple of things it was it wasn't he wanted me to say what can I do to help you solve your problem were some of, some of his words where it was, they, the people needed to own their problem. They needed to see that it was theirs and I was there as a, as a coach, mentor, help, help or, helper. And then the other part was, it's, it's obviously not doing it to them, you're, you're doing it for them. And I think, I think just some of those basic ideas about coercion and, and, and perhaps certain leaders that think that they can just apply authoritarian control on organizations versus being more of a, an enabling leader that, that knows how to work with their people and their culture. Well, knowing the roles. I'm the CEO. I've decided we're going north. I'm going to explain to you why I've decided that, and I've taken input, but we're going north. Yeah. And there are teams where they struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we, we want to be part of that decision. Well, maybe not. In our organization, I get to decide that. I'm now going to turn it over to you folks. How can I help? You know, what kind of transportation do you guys need? What, mm-hmm. You know, that's the functional relationship sure. between choosing direction and, and choosing you know, the how, if you will. Sure. I think the um, analogy of marketing um, is a, a good one. It's, uh, I use the analogy of sales and marketing quite a bit in talking about transformation. Um, you know, because you should start off with a value proposition that mm-hmm. you're giving um, to your organization, um, you can position yourself as a trusted advisor, not just the person in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is kind of to your point, uh, Eric, around coaching and helping people deliver what they they get. But it's also about listening to the feedback that you mm-hmm. you get because it's uh, what I see when quite often when a leader becomes very firm about the direction. That's great, but if he doesn't listen to any feedback. Mm-hmm then he could end up driving something that he, an unintended consequence because he's not hearing what's being uh, fed back. He or she is hearing what's coming back. So I think that's um, uh, just a, an important concept that this is, you know, change requires two-way um, yeah. conversations and alignment across boundaries requires you to think about how is the other, you know, how does what we're trying to do with this project help somebody else get their, right. their goals? You know, going to a, another department head that you need resources from to help you with the project, going to them and saying, I need resources to get, to get my project um, done from you, I mean, their first reaction is no, I've got my own goals and things to, to get. Whereas if you go and say, and try to understand, well, what are you trying to achieve, Mr. Department Head? Right. What is it that you're trying to, to get done? And they tell you, and you look for ways that them providing you resources can help them get that done. Sure. Or how um, are we each interpreting the larger goal? We right. both work for the same CEO. Right. I'm doing this, which may or may not be promoting my own agenda, versus, you know, I feel like my part is this, and then you feel your part is that. How do we work together? But I think sometimes that works very naturally because you have very mature, effective collaborators. Other times you really need the help of yeah. you know, your common leader. Um, yeah, I, I like the feedback comment. I was going to bring that up as well. Is I think that's obviously a part of the learning and the alignment. is, And that should be a huge area of focus, I think, for organizations. And I think it's a big opportunity like where more data could exist too is, is, is the other thing that came to my mind is Obama would talk about uh, toward a more, more perfect union. I think that's part of this as well, right? You're leading change. You're going to try to implement some things. You're going to realize that you like meet resistance at some points, and you need to negotiate on that, and you need to listen to the feedback and and understand how to best align the interests. And and it's messy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, you know, one of the earlier on we were talking about kind of you know what what's the difference in successful transformations to those that are not so successful. One of the things that I see is lots of companies manage their risk of their projects, mm-hmm. but I don't see people managing assumptions, and so a key process in managing risk needs to be about managing the assumptions that you made for making this project move forward. So there'll be uh, assumptions you made in your business case, for example. You know, hey, we assumed that it was going to be $5 per unit made, and we're going to, you know, make 10 more units. That's going to cost us $50 more. Well, if it costs $10, now you've doubled the number mm-hmm. and verifying assumptions as you go can prevent you from falling into a trap yeah. and failing with the project or going down a wrong path. By checking on your assumptions, you get to uh, an early warning, of early feedback before yeah. you get too far um, down the track of a particular piece of the the project, and so I think that's one of the key things to um, successful transformations is is really managing um, the assumptions. And I learned this a long long time ago. I was about 21 years old, and I was uh, responsible for moving um, equipment from one uh, workshop to another workshop, and there were about a hundred yards apart inside a building uh, in the Air Force. I was in the Air Force. And I was working out the space requirements for all this equipment. And so I've got my bit of graph paper and I'm counting the tiles. 
and marking it upon the graph paper. I walk out of the um, workshop, walk down the corridors, go into the next workshop. I stand there and I got my same piece of graph paper and I start counting the tiles that are around this particular set of equipment. Oh yeah, perfect, they work. Great. Carry all the stuff into the back to the other workshop. The tiles were different sizes. And so I had assumed that the tiles in both of the workshops were the same size, and I'd drawn my nice diagram, and the tiles were not the same size. There were three inches difference. And I didn't realize that because they weren't sat next to each other. You know, there was 100 yards between the two, um, two workshops. And so I looked like a complete idiot, carrying all this stuff, having moved things around and saying it would fit, and it didn't fit. Um, so that was my big lesson in... Um, checking assumptions and, and managing uh, the assumptions. Yeah, which is kind of like the scientific method, yeah. right? I think, and that's a pretty critical takeaway. And, and maybe we'll start to kind of wrap up based on that. Um, but yeah, I, th I think the scientific method aspect of so I th so another thing in that same context is if you're going to fail, fail fast. You almost said it, but it, it is that thing. And I think also the assumption testing or hypothesis testing, and that gets into lean thinking, for example. Is, is exactly that. What, what are my hypotheses and how would I know using data or you know, quality, qualitative and quantitative data to, to determine whether or not I should proceed into the next phase? And one of the hardest things, you know, I've been you know, talking to different startups about the whole decision of when, how do you know when to pivot? Mm -hmm. and, and I think what I've gleaned is the people who are very clear on their mission as distinguished from their strategy or their, you know, their product, you know, we want to go change the world in this way. And that's why we all gather. That's what we're all committed to. And that's, a, that's general enough that that's not going to change. Mm -hmm. But then you see the companies that have like, tried A, and then they switched to B, and then they switched to C, and then somehow D succeeded. And it still fits within that larger mission umbrella. Yeah. But they had no idea that's where they'd end up. And you, you talk to the leaders and you say, how did you get there? Well, we had a, a, a way of talking about and discussing the choices and the risks and the trade-offs and, a, and a kind of a, you know, the feedback amongst ourselves and then a courage to do it. It still doesn't guarantee it, but I mean, it seems like they, they have, uh, you know, the, the, the teamwork around that, if it's a leadership team or if it's a small startup, makes all the difference yeah. because it's an uncertain path you're taking. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good segue, I think, into the topic for next month, which is vision and strategy. And I'm sure values and mission obviously fall into that same bucket. But if, if you know at your core, and this came up in the last podcast in the first one, it was actually the first thing that Scott Davis said was, you need to know yourself first really well. Mm -hmm. And, and we were talking about external relationships. And my question to him was, how do you kind of Woo, woo somebody that you'd want to work with into your, you know, nest or whatever. Mm -hmm. And step one is like know yourself really well, which is kind of, you know, have an assessment and vision and really know it and not be defensive of it, but just uh, be on a mission to proving it and to verifying it scientifically as proof, either from the market or from your employees or from your supporters or sponsors or whatever. So, so let's wrap it up at that. Uh, any kind of last thoughts or comments, anything you guys would like to have said that hasn't been stated so far about m developing and managing business capabilities? What, what should some of the main takeaways for people be? Well, I'll put a book on kind of what I started with. In, in my experience, I've found that kind of this balance of a commitment to continuous improvement, and, and, and there's lots of ways to figure out where you should be improving, um, but you're still delivering and you're still really measuring whether your improvement is the right one. Um, so it's, it's, it's all about both and be very careful if you're going too far in either direction, you know? Yeah, I think for me is that just, uh, I would just call out some things that um, for me uh, in the projects and programs that I have run um, that have helped things be successful. And, you know, a lot of the times I've been taking over projects that were failing. Um, you know, we talked about the assumptions and making sure that as you go forward that you're checking your assumptions, not just the risks. You prioritize very strongly 
um, and that includes with your scope management. And it's much better to get things done quickly and move on to things that you've postponed until later rather than try to do all of those things at once. Um, it's about having the courage to make the decisions at every level of the organization that the right people are doing the right things and that the communication of those decisions and the communication of the purpose of the project is absolutely continual. You'll never overcome the talk of the Seahawks by a once a month management town meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and so building that into the, uh, the organization is critical. And you know, as I said, I think for uh, small businesses, um, it's much easier for them to be successful with fewer people to align and get um, going. And I think that large corporations can learn from that by having smaller teams, maybe more of them, but having smaller teams where the communication amongst each other is um, much easier. Uh, and that way you don't have to fall victim to you know, being one of the 70% that fails uh, the projects. A lot of great thoughts. Uh, next month, we'll talk about developing vision and strategy. And so just to put an end cap on this, so we just talked about developing and managing business capabilities. And I hope you guys learned a lot. Thanks to being here. Thank Thanks you. very much. You have been listening to the Abstract Capable Communities podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. This episode was about developing and managing business capabilities, and the guests were Andrew Scott and Alan Sebring. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at appsjack.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. If you like what you heard on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. You can also find out more by going to appsjack.com slash meetup. You can get more information on this month's topic and the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Seatown Media production. Find out more at seatownmedia.com. That's S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com.